hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. This is what it sounds like driving across Victory Bog. Victory is in Essex County, the most unpopulated part of Vermont's Northeast Kingdom, and the town of Victory is the smallest organized town in Vermont. It's at least a half an hour from any store, and it's surrounded by big forest land that's mostly owned by the state. I was meeting up with Will Statz, who worked for both Vermont and New Hampshire for 40 years as a wildlife biologist. He's also a passionate hunter. He spends every hour he can in the woods. He knows the backcountry of the kingdom right up into Maine and up to Labrador. And by that, I mean he has hunted and explored so much of it that he can connect ridge to softwood bowl to bog. He can picture how the land lays. On this day, he was taking me bird hunting. We met up at his house, and then we rode about 10 miles in his truck on logging roads. And I figured I'd just be learning about bird hunting... But we ended up talking about the growing divide between traditional hunting culture and people who are trying to stop certain kinds of hunting here in Vermont. But it was more than that, more than just about hunting. It was maybe more about how we harden against each other. Anyway, before we went into the woods, we sat for a while in his truck and we talked about the town of Victory. Here's Will. Well, I don't know the exact number. It's somewhere in the 60s, um, you know, um, the number of people that live in Victory. And we're and I must say we're kind of an eclectic bunch. Um, we like to be. <laughs> I think a lot of us like to be alone there, um, because we're sort of spread over a vast forested area. There's no store, no post office. There's a collection of mailboxes at the four corners, and and not hardly any children. Um, we used to have a bunch of children um, some years ago. Um, a bunch, maybe seven or eight. You know, something like that. That was a good bunch, and. You know, as I was talking to you earlier, you know, Victory has kind of a, a, a colorful past. Um, you know, we've had a lot of strife in town because it's a kind of like a big dysfunctional family. You know, when you're so small, everything's real personal, you know. and When you live in a community as tiny as Victory, Vermont, what do you learn about how... tolerance? If you're living that close in such a closed little society, you kind of got to learn a little bit of tolerance that somebody's going to be a bit different than you, you know, and it can be hard to accept at times for sure. But everybody's coming from a different place. And like I said, everybody's got a story. What are, the, what are some of the tension points right now in a place like Victory? Oh, well, you see signs, you know, signs go up and, and, and yet you still like your neighbor. And that sign might not be your political affiliation and you just kind of politely not look at it and politely not bring it up. Not a good idea to get talking about that. Still share that beer, but you realize that sign is just over your back shoulder. <laughs> So let's talk about if you saw a deer yesterday or something, you know, let's just keep it at that level. You know, that's the only way you're going to survive with each other. Because if you start pointing that you shouldn't be that way, that's not going to change anybody. You know, I mean, it's what business, you know, it's just so it really boils down to tolerance. And look, it's hard. And I'm not saying it always goes well. All you got to do is look at all the little towns in Vermont and it can end up badly many times, you know. Yeah, but when you got to live in a real tiny community, it when the trees are down or the power's out or the road is flooded, we've all come together always. 
you know we really have and so we need each other as human beings that's for sure to survive out here the further north you are always seem like the nicer the people are when i go up to labrador and northern ontario or quebec because you got to have each other to survive you know you really do and and uh vermont's a tough place at times okay i have never been bird hunting before and so we are sitting in your truck there is nobody around for a billion miles what's the objective so um we're parked near a cover we call we call these these habitats that the grouse and woodcock like covers in essence they really are covering for the birds because it's often it's the best covers are very dense lots of high stem densities so the birds feel protection from avian predators um, and foxes and coyotes can't get through that thick stuff as quickly goshawks can't fly through really quickly to catch these birds and so they're comfortable in there they've got they've got good protection so our objective when we're bird hunting is to go to these covers and we we hold them in great secret you're so safe with me because I'll never, ever, I couldn't tell anybody where we are right now, and I never will be able to. I appreciate that. But but this cover is really special for me because this is where my my beloved cricket dog, um, she had her, one of her last hunts here. In essence, she had her really last successful hunt here. Um, and there's a place down in here that I visit every fall. It's I call it Cricket's Log. It's a log where she and I sat together, and we sat for her last year of life. And uh, so I always, always like to go visit that every year. And you, you have, a, you are a wildlife biologist, mm-hmm. and you are. Um, what is the relationship between yourself as a wildlife biologist and a hunter? You know, I pride myself in being a wildlife biologist. I've spent nearly forty years in the wildlife conservation career, and um, what makes me feel best of all is protecting these large habitats, being part of large landscape scale land protection efforts, because those lands like what we're sitting in right here are going to be here forever and they're going to support wildlife forever. So when I've sat alone on the stand, you know, testifying against giant wind projects on mountaintops, which we've had to do, it can be a really lonely place, but who else is going to do it? You know, and and frankly, some of these anti-hunting groups, it'd be nice if they joined us there and sat with us and said, you know what? It's more important to save this mountain range than it is to stop you guys from doing what you like to do out in the woods there, you know, because we don't like it because we don't believe in it. Let's all work together and save that mountain range or save that parcel of land that will support bears forever. So this is how we do this bird hunting thing, is I walk ahead of you, shotgun's loaded. If a bird flies, I'm gonna, it's going to be startling to you, so I'm going to shoot very quickly, you know, because the bird's going to flush, and you're going to get a fleeting instant, you know, to be able to shoot it. If we find any, you know, we may not see any birds. So. Okay, so how can we be making this much noise in the leaves? And- we're not sneaking up on them. They know we're coming. So, oh. so they're going to hold until they you get very close, and then they're going to flush. You know, oh, you know, they, so they're not running away from us? Oh, so God. Just- well, sometimes grouse will run away from you, but mostly they're just in position, and then they flush. But see, this is the, you know, here's alders here. Now, this is, this is, this alder's getting really old here because you see a lot of vegetation growing up underneath it. So it's, this alder's getting tired. It's starting to lay over. 
good cover has no vegetation underneath. It's dense stems, so it shades the forest floor so that that stuff can't grow. But the little woodcock can walk around under there and probe with their little bills for worms. So it needs to be cleaner than that underneath. And so when we do our habitat work, we'll um, cut these alders and get a new growth coming up. Alders growing back in a nice, young, thrifty, uh, healthy stand of alders that will shelter the woodcock and the grouse. So this is called splash. This white droppings, that's where a woodcock had sat. That's its, its uh, scat. We call it splash or chalk. So a woodcock sat here and it was walking around with its little short legs probing for uh, worms. So this is a little bit of a challenge. You know, we're, we're going to have a little... <laughs> Any woodcock or grouse cover worth anything is hard to get through, okay? Because that makes it good. So you and I are going to have a little bit of a challenge getting down to Cricky's log down here. It's because the beaver have moved in and there's some... I haven't been in here this year, so we'll see what we encounter. There's a woodcock right there. See it fly? Yes. So I didn't get a shot at it. It came up really low right there and, and came up right out. Sometimes there could be another one, but that was a woodcock. Did you hear that little twittering? That's from the... the... Yeah, that's awesome to see that. Given the amount of time that you've spent mm. out here, mm -hmm. when you look out, you see something, you see a deep logic in the spread and how it lays out and why and what all of the collaboration that you see mm -hmm. because you are a biologist and right, you're right. somebody who spends yep. you know a lot of time in the woods. Well, you know intuitively how this, we know scientifically how a lot of this stuff happens, but you can't, you know, we, we know scientifically how the leaves change every year, but every year that I see it, it's a greater miracle than the last year, you know? I see it every year. And I say, it's just a miracle. Look at this. You, you, you know, and I just see this, this, this landscape here, and I'm like, you know, how this all came together, you know? Yeah, I know that grows a certain way because the soil's a certain way, and the seed's a certain way, and evolution is a certain way, and this happened and that happened, but man, there was some pretty good tinkering out here sometime a long way back. Oh, this is never fun to see. What? What are you seeing? Oh, a can floated down the river. You know, somebody near the road threw a can in there. But you know what? What's that? It's always, it's either going to be a Bud Light I know it. or it's going to be a Twisted Tea. Exactly. Am I right? Absolutely, right on. So we got to cross this, we got to cross a series of little brooks. Okay. What is the relationship between the hunting impulse? And the, the, the woods impulse. I don't, I don't know what I'm asking exactly, but... Well, hunting's a really good excuse to be in the woods. <laughs> and I have to be in the woods all the time, in the mountains. And hunting brings you at another level. You develop a, a, a close, this kind of relationship with the forest and with what's out there. When you've been into these wild places, and you've gone to these wild places on a hunt, whether it's whether you're with your hounds for a bear or a bobcat or you're tracking a big deer or a little deer, whatever it is, or, or pursuing grouse through these covers, you, you are endeared to that place forever from these adventures that you have there. And that place becomes so special to you and so much more than just that ridge over there. Because you've had an experience with that wildlife. You've, you've made a connection there that that you wouldn't necessarily have had you not pursued that animal up on that ridge. And because that ridge is so special to you now, that it's endeared to you, 
that I and other people that I know would do anything to protect that ridge. This is a moose pit. So a bull moose had scraped a pit here and then he urinates in it during the breeding season, which was, we're sort of at the tail end of the breeding season now, but there's some, some bulls will keep breeding into November, but, and then the cows will come and roll in it, um, roll and get that urine on them to show their acceptance for breeding. So see if you can smell a really, um, it will taste, it will smell like cat piss, strong cat piss odor. Um, and you know it. You if you're not smelling, it's just too uh, old. It's faint. Okay. I can smell it. Can you it, smell a cat pissy? Yep. Okay. All right. That's that's the bull. He's pissing me. All right. Back on track. Another grouse. I didn't even hear that one. What's interesting about you is you are not. Are you conservative? Are you liberal? And I'm not talking about politics. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But what yep. if you had to describe? Um, you live in the kingdom in victory, which yeah. is which is pretty which is um, pretty conservative. Pretty conservative. Sure. Um, and I'm a registered independent, and I, I, you, my my leanings are probably more to the to the. Uh, I don't want to say I'm a liberal, but because I'm pretty conservative about. I mean, you probably wouldn't find. Too many liberal. I mean, I don't. I don't even want to characterize. You know, doing what I do, hunting and trapping. They wouldn't do that necessarily. You know, my, you know what I mean. <laughs> so, so I don't want. I just, I just like to stay in the middle and figure out the. I don't know. You well, know. no, you're totally an anomaly. That's why I'm kind well, of asking. Is it? But I can't stand Trump. Trust me, that. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. There's, there's a, there's a. Um, well, what makes me sad is that you, you know. I'm starting to feel like a stranger in my own state. That that just occurred to me this year, particularly with this all-out war against hunters and particularly hunters with with hounds by by these organizations. And I'm like, and and the the politicians going right along with it, you know. And it's suddenly like, well, times need to change, you know. I mean, there's that kind of an attitude, you know. These cultural traditions can't last forever, you know. I've heard some of that sentiment. And it's like. And then it gets really awful because then they start comparing us to, I heard in one of the compares like white supremacists. What Vermont do I live in now? You know, what, what is this place? I'm starting to feel like I'm going to get looked at different with that dog box in the back of my truck now, you know? I'm not going to be liked. And I don't like to not be liked, you know? <laughs> Who wants to not be liked, you know? But people are so angry. They're so angry. There's a lot of people who really don't like us. I mean, they don't, it's not just that they hate us. They hate. And I want to talk to people about their points of view and stuff, but there's this attitude that we know what's better for you and for us here in Vermont now, and, and you need to adapt or go away. And, and I don't want to look at people and start to be... You know, I'm starting to, you can, you start to cag, categorize and you're like, well, okay, they're, they're riding that mountain bike. They've got the golden retriever and they are dressed in the spandex and they're going to make sure they make that six mile run and they're going to do the mountain biking thing. But boy, when they see you with that pickup truck and God forbid you have a deer in the back, you are in trouble. You are in trouble. You better hide it. Do you, you, the kingdom is right now the kingdom has the highest 
COVID mm. numbers in I the know. state. And when I hear that, I get disappointed. Yes. And then I me feel, too. and then it makes me wonder what's going on. Mm. And it, again, it's sort of like, and it, it ties into what you're saying right here somehow. It's kind of like, it's like a hardening a drifting from common sense mm. that is that we're mm. being infected by. Yeah. And so you just described one kind of mm. uh, hardened certainty that yep. comes from M- Montpelier way. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And this is a different kind of hardened mm. certainty. Mm. And I'm worried about those yeah, things. No, because I what know. I loved about this place is that there was sort of a pragmatism mm-hmm. and a you do you, I'll do me. Yeah, you know, and... and People are everywhere now. They're everywhere. And that's okay as long as they don't think what you're doing is bad and want to stop that. They can think it's, they can not agree with it. They can say it's bad. But don't try to stop it because you think you know what's better. That's the problem. You know, we can argue over the fate of this one particular animal all we want. But meanwhile, we're losing so much of our habitat here in Vermont and in other places through suburbanation, uh, uh, you know, houses being built in these places that never had them before, giant energy projects, whether it's uh, solar farms in the middle of these fields that once had meadowlarks or other species, uh, bobolinks. Um, so we're kind of missing the point here. You know, it was, we argue over the fate of this particular animal over here or the two or three hundred bears that are shot every year. You know, the land can support that if we've got those healthy habitats. But if we don't, um, we're going to lose it all. So, so, so right here, the beaver are actually doing our habitat work for us. They're, they're, they're cutting this alder down, and this is going to regenerate because alder sprouts from the stumps. And so you're going to get a profusion of new sprouts. Here's, here's a sprout coming up from this stump here. But, of course, the beaver chopped it off. But... So there are, there, you know, a lot of beaver are wonderful habitat manipulators. I've always been so interested in fish and wildlife just because of the cultures that it mm. straddles. Mm. I don't know that a lot of people understand how many scientists are working night and day to oh. protect and conserve wild spaces. They just don't Vermont. understand. We're like the invisible force out there. You know, I've said one of the other threats to wildlife these days is an intolerance to wildlife. I mean, we hear from that vocal minority that's screaming about how bad hunters and trappers are. But what you're not hearing about is the people that move up here that have no tolerance for wildlife at all. And they don't want them there. So hunting, trapping, that, that's not on their radar screen. What's on their radar screen is this pesky bear walked through their backyard and they want it out of here. You know, I just bought this place. I had a woman call me from New Hampshire, Bethlehem, New Hampshire, and she said, I want all the bears out of this town. And I'm like, well, of course, you have to take this kind of easy. Well, they were your town is in some pretty good bear habitat, and those bears were kind of there before you got there. So we are not going to move all the bears out of that town. She didn't like that answer. But that's just a, one of many, many examples of this intolerance of an urbanized society beginning to penetrate into the rural landscape. We used to joke about the three calls. So you would get three calls on the bear. The first call was, hey, I saw a bear near our house the other day. Call number two, 
that damn bear's back again. Call number three. Come get your bear out of here. Those were the three calls. I mean, over and over again. I mean, golf courses where we showed up and had to catch cubs off the roof of the the clubhouse and the golf guy coming up to us and whispering said, you know, if you want to kill those, you can. Go, go ahead. And we're like, no, we are not killing these bears. They're feeding on the acorns that are falling out of the tree that are rolling on top of your roof. We'll take the bears out of here, but we're not killing them. And I'm saying, you know, bears are just kind of a very visible example of this, but it could be the beaver in the back, you know, that's cutting their ornamentals down. It's always, you know, let's get the critters out of here, you know. And so there's this growing intolerance, I think, other than, again, on the other side, you hear this vocal minority saying, oh, my God, we care about wildlife, you know. But they're not facing these calls at four in the afternoon on a Friday. And often I was called to testify or sit on a stand about a development project. And you, like I said earlier, you're, it's a lonely place to be. There's none of these other groups in that room. And you're called upon, it might be a multi-million, even billion-dollar project that you are sitting there. And you're talking about in your capacity as a wildlife as biologist. As a wildlife biologist, sure. Working for the state. Right? Working for the state. You're the only line of defense between that developer and the destruction of a huge amount of wildlife habitat. So, man, it's lonely there. Where were those groups? They weren't in the room. They were not in the room. If you care about wildlife, if you're passionate about wildlife, you got to have a seat at those tables because that's where things are really happening. Oh, what scrambling out there. So here's here's Cricky's log right here. Right here. <laughs> oh, Cricky. Right here. I had a picture of her with three woodcock laying right there. So it's your limit. You can shoot three in a day. And she was sitting right there. And that was that day she flushed 22 woodcock in here. And we shot her limit pretty quick. And, um, and then we just hunted through. And she just kept flushing woodcock. And, but she was looking tired when she sat here. You know, she, you could tell she was old. You look at the picture, she was old. And then the next year, I'd go to the truck and she'd just stand there in the door. And she... she she knew that she couldn't go. She just sat there, and I knew that was it. That was it. And then, of course, that I think that following spring was when she passed away. What would happen is she'd be she'd be out there, and I wouldn't know where she was. And then you just hear this bell coming. You hear that bell coming. I, I remember the one place of all places I remember that was up on this big mountain, and we were in a moose pasture, which are these places the moose have browsed a lot. And there's a lot of hobble bush and stuff. So you lose track of, you know, she gets under that. You can't see her, you know. And I was up and looking out towards the north and just this fabulous view. It's all colored up from the fall. And I didn't know where she was. And pretty soon I heard her. And I go, hey, Crick. And just pretty soon, here comes that bell. And then she comes out. It was so good. That was so good. Yep. Yeah, she was something. I had more fun with her. When you when you sit here or when you're out here, I don't know. The, I guess if if what are you getting? Peace. You know, life is a uh, it's tough, and when I'm with my dogs, alone on those ridges, it's as close to peace as I get.
We didn't shoot any birds that day, which was fine with both of us. This is Rumble Strip. I'm Erica Heilman. Thanks for listening.